to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And thanks for joining us, everybody. We have another great show for you today. Lots to talk about. We're going to go over the latest developments in Ukraine. We'll talk about the economy and prospects for a recession. We'll talk about Amazon and the future of the labor movement, and we'll offer up even some media criticism, and domestic news. But before we get to those issues, there are some other things happening in the news that we wanted you to know about. Um, First, there is breaking news. Just moments ago, the United Nations, let me pull it up here, the United Nations General Assembly voted to suspend Russia from its Human Rights Council. Uh, No surprise there. We, uh, We talked about that yesterday on the show. And, you know, like we said, it's chaired by Saudi Arabia. So, yeah. How big of a deal could it possibly be? OK. Um, there's a strange story, Michelle, developing here in Washington. We're going to talk about it later in the show with uh, one of our guests. But the FBI has arrested two men who had been posing as special agents of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they apparently bought uniforms and equipment online and dressed up. They rented an apartment in Washington in a building near the baseball stadium that houses mostly employees of the Secret Service, the Navy Department, and the Pentagon. They befriended four Secret Service agents, including one who guards Vice President Kamala Harris. They gave these guys gifts, including a free apartment for a year worth $40,000, surveillance equipment, a generator, a TV, and a case for an assault rifle. The four Secret Service agents have been placed on leave while the FBI investigates. The two pretenders, I guess I can call them, were arrested. But if my 15 years at the CIA means anything, it tells me that this is a foreign intelligence operation. This is just this is not just a couple of nuts who, you know, wanted to be DHS agents. Nuts don't go out and spend $40,000 on an apartment and thousands of dollars on gifts to just give away unless they intend to recruit these people. Mm -hmm. So there's something behind this that we don't quite know yet. I would put money on it. I love this story. This is like my, I mean, I was going to say this is my favorite story in a really long time. But of course, Capital Fox also was a really great story. So (laughs) this is definitely my favorite story since yesterday. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about the Fox. Oh, the poor Fox. I mean, of course... Of course, it was going to turn out to be rabid. I of mean, a fox attacking people during the day, like that's definitely a, a rabid in, animal. Inside the Capitol, no less. And so, well, did he get inside? I yeah. only saw him out on the grounds. No, yeah. He, he actually got up the steps. Wow. Is this going to, you know, is this going to be part of the January 6th hearings? How did, who let him up the steps, John? Who opened the barricades? <laughs> the cops waved him was up. Was somebody there days before encouraging the fox to breach the Capitol? Yeah. So. The fox has been euthanized and everybody who's been bitten got to go out and get those rabies shots. I understand it's not as painful as it used to be when we were, you know, younger and you had to get it in your stomach and all. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's still an unfortunate situation. I have had the rabies uh, prophylactic shots uh, when I was when I was living in Laos yeah. because there is rabies there. And you just did not want to, you know, get be bitten by something at a time when maybe there were storms or flights weren't flying or whatever, because you would have had to go to Bangkok to get the rest oh. of the treatment and you have to get it within a certain window of time. And the prophylactic shocks shots uh, buy you a little bit of extra time. 
Ugh. So that I did it just, it was, it's just like two shots. It's not a big deal. And I got to practice my, my Lao and learn the word for vaccines and things. So that you was know, fun. I, I got the uh, typhoid shot one time before going to uh, Thailand, to, before going to Pakistan. And then I went on to Thailand and I caught typhoid there. And when I came back, it was as sick as I had ever been in my life. And I said, I had the typhoid shot. How did I get typhoid fever? Did you get the typhus shot? I got the typhus shot, but the doctor told me, oh, he said, you know, that's something most people don't realize. It doesn't prevent you from getting typhoid. It prevents it from being as serious as it otherwise could be. Oh, just like the COVID vaccine. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Amazing how vaccines have worked like this for a very long time. I always kind of enjoyed getting getting the vaccinations that you don't have to get as a matter of course in the United States before you so you feel like superhuman. Really? Oh, yeah. Look, look at all these diseases. Oh, I got I'm the shingles get. shot and I, I convinced myself that I felt like a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a couple of other things happening, mm-hmm. too. Um, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will likely be confirmed to the Supreme Court uh, this afternoon, like probably while we're doing the show. Um, she has garnered commitments from 53 senators, including three Republicans, and the vote to invoke cloture and then the vote to affirm the nomination are happening today. The vote to invoke cloture was supposed to have taken place 35 minutes ago. It's been delayed. As soon as uh, cloture is invoked, then they're going to actually do the up or down vote on her. It's going to be 53 to 47. You know, interestingly, there's a little side thing to this that's that's kind of funny to me. Until 2017, you needed 60 seats. I'm sorry, 60 votes to name somebody to the Supreme Court and to get them approved. 60 votes until 2017. But the Republicans didn't have 60 votes to get Neil Gorsuch onto the court. And so Mitch McConnell changed the rules so that you only needed 51. And now it's come back to bite them. So Ketanji Brown-Jackson is going to be on the Supreme Court by the end of the day today. Okay, the president of NBC News has something of a mutiny on his hands, which I'm kind of getting a kick out of. Mm -hmm. Employees of NBC News are furious about the hiring of Jen Psaki, the White House spokeswoman, to be the host of a new streaming show on the Peacock Network. It's their new, you know, pay per whatever. Uh, so I do everyone, everyone, <laughs> because we live in an Internet desert. Sorry, I'm not going to derail this for too long. But the Comcast is the only option for yes. for Internet in a lot of parts of D.C. So everyone has Peacock. I don't know anyone who watches it. Like I do not know who's going to be watching this Jen Psaki show that she's going to be making a ton of money for. It's it's, like, it's, it's just a, a tiny, tiny audience. Yeah, tiny. It's like CNN plus. Like who would pay money for that? Yeah. Or Fox. What's it called? Fox Now. Is there streaming? Sir? Who, who watches these net, these obscure networks? I, I heard of a network yesterday. I was watching an interview and this woman says, oh, I have my new show. It's on the Crackle Network. Like what? Hmm. My brother has a friend who used to be a big star in the 90s. And uh, I ran into him last time I was in L.A. And I said, oh, how are you? Uh, I said, how's it going? How's everything going? He said, oh, it's really great. I have a new show on. And then, oh, I know what it was on the Pop Network. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I never heard of the Pop Network. Oh, it used to be the TV Guide channel. Like okay. just that scroll of what's on every channel. No. Yeah, there are, there are weird little shows on that. John, you, I want you to admire my restraint and not just naming every 90s star here for the entire rest of the, the 15 minutes we have to talk about serious matters. Joey McIntyre. <laughs> cool. 
Wow. <laughs> he was best man at my brother's wedding. What? Yeah. Right. Oh, they've been friends for we years. We have to talk about this off there. <laughs> well, the president of NBC, right? Everybody's up in arms about Jen Psaki. And he's like, look, I didn't hire Jen Psaki. MSNBC hired her. There's this weird thing at NBC News where NBC News doesn't control the the Peacock Network. Mm-hmm. MSNBC controls the Peacock Network. And for whatever reason, the president of NBC News doesn't manage MSNBC, which is the news channel. Yeah. Okay. I don't understand that. But no. anyway, these news professionals are pretty angry about it, saying, look, you guys hire all these talking heads, former intelligence people, former FBI people. What about the professional news people who actually know the answers to the questions that need to be asked? Or even know what questions should be asked, exactly. right? Let alone what the answers are. Yeah, exactly. I mean. Exactly. And, you know, this all this does is it serves to bring MSNBC even closer to the DNC. Yeah. Which it's already been criticized for being. Overly close. We have another actually story about N- NBC that we're going to get to uh, pretty soon now about NBC. Uh, NBC congratulating itself for basically functioning as an arm of uh, U.S. intelligence Scandalous. in an embarrassing fashion. You know, I've complained a number of times, Michelle, about Ken Delanian at N- at NBC and MSNBC. I-, I know Ken from my time on Capitol Hill. He's a nice guy. Mm-hmm. I-, I can't take that away from him. Nice guy. The kind of guy you'd like to go out and have a beer with. But he is utterly and completely and totally in the pocket of the CIA. And we know, thanks to a Freedom of Information Act request done by Jason Alex- um, Jason Alexander, Jason Leopold mm-hmm. at BuzzFeed. <laughs> that would be a great half hour sign that right. Jason Alexander tries to do FOIA. <laughs> Jason Leopold. Um, Jason Leopold wrote a FOIA request to the CIA asking for all emails between the CIA's Office of Public Affairs and all journalists, period, right? And he had to sue and go to court, and it was thousands of pages. But what he found was that Kendallanian, who is the chief intelligence correspondent at NBC News, was sending his articles to the CIA for clearance and comment before he was sending them to his own editor. And he would take CIA press releases and gist them and then call them journalists. Mm-hmm. So scandalous. But this kind of thing happens in Washington and every used, day. I mean, the other thing is there was a time when that was sort of embarrassing. Yeah. In this story, which, again, we are going to talk about in a few minutes, so we don't need to beat it to death now. Now they're going, hey, guys, we're doing such a great, we're doing a great job at doing this. At yeah. b- being an arm of the United States propaganda war when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine. And aren't we, isn't this a bold and successful strategy? It right. is wild. Uh, there is one more story. That's been brewing. There was another New York Magazine report on the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation this week. Uh, So there was one. This builds on one from last month. But this one focuses on a six million dollar property that was purchased by the network uh, with money that had been donated to it. And the leaders of the Black Lives Matter Global Network uh, said, hey, look, this is a this is like a hideout. This is sort of a safe house for for people who are feeling threatened or pressured. This is also going to be a space for black creators and recipients of different scholarships to do their artistic work. It's going to be like a residency space. They kind of had different explanations mm. for what this property was going to be for. But there is a real lack of clarity in the in the way the house was purchased and the way the money from this network 
which in many cases might be donated by people who are thinking they are supporting real efforts to support the victims of police brutality or to reform policing or to fund political reforms. Right. Uh, Could just be benefiting personally the leadership of this network. Uh, This builds on other stories questioning the transparency of this network's fundraising. And of course, I mean, it is important to point out this is not new. Local Black Lives Matter chapters, including a formal group of 10 concerned chapters, Mm -hmm. have been calling for financial accountability from these people and from this network for years. Right. Other activists have also been pointing out this foundation's focus on aggressive fundraising and a focus on like digital content creation and and social media messaging rather than supporting the serious health and policing and policy and politics issues that local organizers have been calling for and have been working for 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 a long time. And you saw after this was published, you saw other black writers speaking up saying, I've been trying to write this story also. And, you know, this this powerful organization that's got tens of millions of dollars behind it at this point and is carrying the the mantle of racer, racial justice has interfered uh, with with their efforts to to talk about it and ask, you know, ask once again, as has already been asked from other chapters from, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter chapters. What is going on? Where is this where is this money going? Is this being put to to the purposes we think are most effective? And these are legitimate questions. Yeah. These are legitimate questions that the leadership of the organization ought to be answering, mm-hmm. if not in public. Then certainly to its supporters, to its accountants, yeah. and to its attorneys. Yeah. Otherwise, the next thing you know, there's going to be some sort of a federal investigation, and they don't want to get involved in that. No, and you know, I mean, the, the chapters also. It's I think it's worth pointing out that are that have since I believe 2019 been been asking for some kind of clarity here. It's Black Lives Matter DC. It's Black Lives Matter Chicago, Philly, Houston, New Jersey. So it's not like you know small, tiny little chapters here and there have sprung up. These are serious members of this organization. And they, you know, I I think it is a terrible shame, right, Uh, that that these organizations and the Movement for Black Lives, which is a distinct uh, uh, organization that have been doing work on the ground for a long time and continue to do so now because they sort of share the same hashtag and share the same name and it's been, you know, co-opted to some degree uh, are, are potentially going to be, you know, smeared as having some kind of shady business when they have also been calling for accountability from these people for a long time. I think it is, you know, we are hoping to be able to talk about this with someone who is closer to these movements. Um, But I think that this is a good example of, you know, identifying trends that are dangerous to the status quo and finding a way to sort of off-ramp support Mm -hmm. for them, right? If you don't want people donating to groups that are actually directly confronting police brutality or challenging the interests of big developers in poor communities or involved in local politics in a serious way, you know, find a way to direct that funding, those millions of dollars, some well-meaning, some not toward uh, creating Internet content. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this particular global network foundation has been really useful for Democratic donors who, you know, want to give the appearance of supporting social justice while confining it to, you know, yes. to, to the digital realm, yes. uh, mostly, is the complaint here. Like, where is this money going? Agreed. So, yeah, I, I think it would be a terrible shame if it's allowed to smear the good name of, of groups who have been confronting this handful of people for, for some time now. Our intrepid producer, Ray Valencia, is going to be working on uh, getting somebody close mm. to the movement where we can explore these issues and, and ask these questions. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be on that. In the meantime, we should probably take a short break. 
You're listening to Political Misfits. We are going to take that short break and come back with our first guest, Dan Lazar. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The New York Times confirmed today that the video of Ukrainian soldiers executing Russian POWs was legitimate. This is, of course, a violation of the Geneva Convention, and the German newspaper Der Spiegel reported that the German intelligence service has evidence that Russian soldiers killed Ukrainian civilians, which is a war crime. Meanwhile, Yemeni President Abed Rabu Mansur Hadi has resigned. We're going to talk about that. That's actually really important. Jamal Khashoggi's accused killers and their helpers will no longer be tried in Turkey. They will be transferred to Saudi Arabia, where they will likely live happily ever after. And NBC News, as we said, is admitting that the CIA has had journalists spread false information to the American people. What? As part of the war effort. What a change. You know, that was illegal until 2011. What a total break from uh, from the past. I, mean, <laughs> I hope the sarcasm is coming through. We're joined by journalist and writer Dan Lazar. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thanks for having me. Dan, let's start with uh, with Ukraine. Both sides are accusing each other of war crimes. There's credible evidence that both sides are committing war crimes. Um, the New York Times has confirmed this video that shows Ukrainian soldiers executing Russian prisoners of war. Um, I, I went through the, the Times report today and they went to lengths to to confirm that this was uh, true. It appears to be true. The Germans say that they've confirmed information that Russians have murdered Ukrainian civilians. Some people are arguing, well, fog of war, these kinds of things happen. I suppose that's true. These kinds of things do happen. But in my view, a war crime is a war crime. Have we reached a breaking point, Dan? Or do you see this continuing or even getting worse? I see it getting worse. I mean, uh, I mean, I think that as the war goes on, uh, as, the, as the war slogs on, I mean, uh, I mean, both sides will just, you know, get angrier and angrier and more, you know, more, you know, more abusive, more violent more unrestrained in their attacks on one another and civilians or or POWs will will bear the brunt of that anger. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, yesterday in our editorial meeting, our general manager here was uh, telling us that that he had seen videos uh, showing uh, Ukrainian soldiers taking POWs cell phones and calling their parents and saying, hey, we're going to execute your son and then executing them. Or, or calling POW's girlfriends and saying uh, you should get a new boyfriend and then castrating uh, their, their prisoners. Uh, we're, we're seeing reports that Russian soldiers, unable to tell the difference between civilians and people in the military pretending to be civilians, are just shooting everybody. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that this is... This is what we see in every kind of conflict like this. We we've seen it in the Middle East, in in Iraq, in in Syria. We we see it all over the place, and uh, I I reluctantly 
have to agree with you. I think that it's it's going to get worse, and we're going to be hearing a lot more reports like this. Well, you know, we didn't see it to the, in the same way during World War II. No, that's true. I mean, I mean, the, then you had very strong, uh, strong governments that were committed to an ideology of uh, of anti-fascism. And um, and that doesn't mean there weren't abuses, because obviously there were abuses, many abuses. Um, but the um, but the governments had reason, had motive, motive to exercise restraint, um, to behave uh, in a progressive, small d democratic manner. Uh, and so there was there were forces holding these tendencies back. But now you have like you know you have a. Uh, uh, Two armies of, of sort of equal moral character. You've got a uh, Ukrainians in which the, the ranks of the Azov battalion are apparently just mushrooming. I mean, uh, Andrei Boletsky, the uh, the man who founded Azov, recently bragged in the F- uh, Financial Times that the Azov's membership has zoomed from around a thousand to twenty thousand. Because they are the most effective fighters on the field, and they are Nazis, and Nazis do bad stuff. And on the Russian side, you have apparently uh, low morale, poor discipline, poor um, poor uh, uh, supplies, and you have people like you know, like like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the uh, the Chechen warlord who uh, has made a splashy appearance in uh, Mariupol. You have the Wagner Group, which is apparently, um, you know, has also been enlisted on the Russian side. Uh, you have Syrian mercenaries. Yes. So these are not these are not the kinds of people whom we expect this kind, you know, who, whom we expect very high standards of behavior from. So, uh, so this is a an especially nasty war, especially nasty war fought by really benighted elements on both sides, and therefore we can expect the worst. You know, there was. Uh, I, I hope this isn't getting too far down in the weeds, but there was kind of an incident today where um, the the Greek foreign minister went to Ukraine to express support, and was one of several speakers at an event, and then just after they had the Greek. Uh, speak, they had a member of the uh, Azov Battalion speak. And now the Greeks are protesting this because Greece, on a per capita basis, Greece lost more people to the Nazis than any other country in Europe, including Poland. Like I say, on a per capita basis. Fascism still scars uh, the Greek national psyche. And then to be sort of lumped in with Nazis or neo-Nazis it uh, it's just so patently offensive. The Greeks, the Greeks are shocked by it. Uh, it's in the papers today in Athens, and they're lodging a formal uh, protest. I, I just, I just don't understand how. I listen. I'm not an expert on Ukraine or on Ukrainian politics, but I just don't understand how there can be an embrace of fascism in a country that's so suffered from fascism. Well, I mean, listen. The um, the 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 far right's roots in a uh, in the Ukraine go very very deep. I guess and, you know, and you, you could even argue that you know that the uh, that the that Ukraine was kind of born in the 17th century um, in anti-Semitism. It was the uh, the Kamaletsky, I think his name is, uh, uprising in the 1646. I think it was, you know, which was this explosion of rage by the the Ukrainian peasantry. 
against the um, the, the the Polish landlords, uh, and it was you know it was the the, the rage was utterly under, understandable because they thought the the landlords were you know were absolutely rap- rapacious and squeezing money out of the uh, Ukrainian peasantry, and uh, and um, you know and just driving them down. But the the explosion took on a ferocious anti-Semitic uh, mm-hmm. uh, quality. There were ten. We have no idea what the numbers are, but there were apparently tens of thousands of Jews who were, slaughter, who were slaughtered, um, and so so that legacy lives on. It, 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 it exploded in the interwar period. It exploded during this, the Russian Civil War, where uh, Simon Petlura was notorious for for slaughtering upwards of fifty thousand Jews, and then it, it sort of reached a new stage with Bandera. Who became sort of an expression of Ukrainian nationalism and was you know was a was a Nazi collaborator. Yeah. So when the Ukraine got its freedom and got its independence, I should say, and then was like you know sort of uh, locked in an increasingly tense relationship with Russia, uh, it was kind of inevitable inevitable that these Bandera forces would then rise up, and they rose up with with U.S. something between U.S. tolerance and U.S. encouragement. And so, uh, so they are a major force in the country. Even Zelensky has admitted that Bandera is now a national hero. I mean, streets are named after him. There are, you know, there are there are statues and plaques and conferences, you know, extolling his memory. Uh, this goes very deep. There's no question about it. And I'm I'm not arguing the Russian side is blameless. I think that the uh, that you know that the Putin's goal of of you know denazification yeah, is, is is spurious given yes. what's what the forces on the on the Russian side, but it does mean that the uh, that this that the Ukrainian side has taken on a deep uh, banderist uh, coloration. That's undeniable, and that's something the, the the Greek diplomat you mentioned you know came face to face with. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Let's switch gears, Dan, and talk about. Uh, Yemen for a minute. One of my favorite issues, actually. We reported on Monday here on the show that Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Yemen had agreed on a two-month ceasefire. Two months being very long because they thought if people got used to not fighting, there was more of a chance that this thing would stick. Well, now we have breaking news from this morning that Yemen's president, Abid Rabu Mansour Hadi, who actually lives in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia in exile, has resigned. Uh, this was a key demand of the Houthis, who are the de facto rulers of Yemen, and uh, and it bodes well, it seems, for a longer term peace. Uh, give me your thoughts. Where do they go from here? Well, I mean, it's, I suppose it's possible that they, they, they will be able to hammer out some kind of accord. And it certainly seems that the that the, um, that the Saudis want to meet the Houthis halfway. Uh, they are anxious for a peace deal. They want to wrap stuff, wrap things up. The, the Houthis have 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 been very effective in their use of drones and missiles against Saudi faci- oil facilities. Yes, indeed. Um, and they, they have really um, uh, caused real damage. They've, they've caused real pain to the Saudis. So the Saudis, you know, really want to settle this thing. It's a, it's a, it's a bleeding wound in, in, in the side of the, uh, of the kingdom, um, and they want to get it solved. So it's possible something is happening, but you know, I, I think the odds are still against it. Uh, and um, and you know, and and 
and and by the way, the odds are still against it. It won't even be entirely the Saudis' fault, fault because you know, I mean, the the Houthis are are every. I mean, it's important to keep in mind they are every bit as benighted uh, a force as the Saudis. They are they're a religious obscurantist group. Uh, they. They, you know, they may have the majority of the Yemeni population on their side, but these they are they are backward and um, and uh, hardly democratic. Uh, so you know, so so I wouldn't regard them as a as a progressive force either. Yeah, so, agreed. You know, so I I think it's very important to to keep that in mind. And this is this is this is yet an, so many conflicts today are are consist of bad guys versus bad guys. And uh, and um, and I think uh, Yemen falls in this category. We all feel we all feel sympathy for the Houthis because they've been attacked by the, the you know the, the, Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, and it has been attacked by the richest country in the Middle East. You know, mm-hmm. which was acting at the behest of the of the Americans. So therefore, you know, you know, everyone feels sympathy for the Houthis. Or at least everyone I, I know, right? But we still have got to keep in mind the political character of the Houthi militias, and uh, and it's it's not progressive. So that's all I'm saying. You know, n- not to make light of this, but it it kind of reminds me of some, of a conversation that I had with my with my eldest son many years ago when he was little. He was probably eleven, and he loved, loved, loved studio wrestling, WWE wrestling. So I took him to Madison Square Garden and we're watching these guys wail on each other and smash chairs on each other's backs and stuff like that. And I said to him, so which one's the good guy? And he said, there are no good guys. That's what makes it fun. (laughs) And it reminds me of this situation. So the the W the WWE turns out to be a, a a better teacher of how the world works. Yeah, you just have two sides wailing on each other, and there are no good guys. Right, right. Yeah, that's how it seems to me. Uh, staying on this this uh, theme of of Saudi Arabia not being a good guy, Jamal Khashoggi was murdered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul after being summoned there back in what was it now two thousand seventeen eighteen something like that. Uh, he was chopped up inside the consulate and disposed of. We don't really know how, but the reports are he was uh, his pieces were thrown in a well on the consulate's grounds. The Turkish government arrested like 28 people at the time uh, and alleged that they had played some role in the murder. The actual murderer was identified, although he he made his way back to Saudi Arabia. So now the Turks have said, yeah, you know what? We don't need to put any of these people on trial. We'll just send them to Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis, of course, are never going to try these guys. They're going to be, I mean, they were on a mission from the crown prince. So, of course, they're not going to, they're not going to be tried. Um, Why have the Turks gone so wobbly so quickly? What do the Turks hope to gain from Saudi Arabia? Well, uh, there there are two reasons. I mean, and and they're both sort of Two sides of the same coin. I mean, one is the U.S. is on the retreat. Uh, the, um, the, the the days when the U.S. could sort of like you know could sort of serve as the policeman of yeah. the Middle East. I mean, it never was able to to any you know to all that great an extent. But that but its its influence is uh, is shrinking uh, dramatically. Um, and secondly, oil prices are high, so Saudi Arabia is rich. 
And Turkey's economy is just goes from from bad to worse. Uh, and and Erdogan's political standing is following the same downward descent. So um, mm-hmm. so you know, so I mean, and, and you know, with, with Erdogan, I mean, everyone keeps wondering, like, oh, how much longer can this guy last? And he he he's very tenacious, and he has managed to hold on much longer than many of us would have thought. But clearly, the guy has got to patch up relations with some with certain rivals such as Saudi Arabia, which is now feeling its oats because its, its coffers are full. And, you know, and, and, and Middle East politics are, are, are so complicated uh, and so nasty, really. I mean, Erdogan's in a dispute with, uh, with, with, with Egypt. Uh, Israel has suddenly emerged as a major, a major political force, you know, in the Middle East. Before, no one would talk to Israel, but now suddenly Israel's Everyone's talking to Israel, and Israel is emerging as a as a kind of an uh, an organizational presence mm-hmm. in, that, in that part of the world. So um, it's just uh, it's just uh, the, the the pieces are rearranging themselves, uh, and I think that uh, Erdogan is looking for help for that from the Saudis. That's a good way to put it. I I think you're exactly right to tell you the truth. The uh, the Pentagon, Dan, has confirmed that a small number of Ukrainian soldiers are here in the United States where they're being trained to use something called a switchblade drone. Very cool looking little drone. This apparently is a is a train the trainer session where these guys are supposed to return back to Ukraine and then teach other people how to use this thing. The switchblades are only 40 pounds, but they can carry a warhead big enough to destroy a tank. And they can fly for 24 miles, which is pretty impressive when you look at the size of the thing. Could this be a game changer in Ukraine like the Stinger missile was in Afghanistan, where where a foreign army can die from a thousand cuts? Well, actually, I think you're I think you're incorrect. It isn't, they don't weigh 40 pounds. They weigh six pounds. That's it. And, and you can and, and they carry the charge of a hand grenade. So um, so you can you can you can the, the wings. Fold up, which hence the name switch. Yeah, they fold up, and you and you can put them in a backpack really easily, so a soldier can carry them without any trouble at all. Um, and uh, and they dive on a tank, and a hand grenade is there's no a well placed hand grenade is all you need to take out at least a, a light armored vehicle. Crazy. So they are they are very effective. I mean, they're, they're pretty impressive. I must say, they're very cheap. They're very portable. Yeah, they cost six thousand dollars each. They're very cheap. They're only 19 and a half inches. They fit into a backpack because they fold up and uh, and they can fly uh, up to 500 feet. Yeah. Pretty impressive. No, they're they're they're, they're very, uh, by the way, the, uh, the 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 stinger's reputation as I uh, was overstated. The, um, there's a there's an excellent book, a wonderful book by a Brit named uh, Roderick Braithwaite called Afghansi, the Russians in Afghanistan, 1979 to 89. And he argues that the the impact of the uh of the uh, stinger was, was greatly exaggerated. Uh, the Russians had already decided to pull out of Afghanistan uh, by the time the um, the stingers were introduced in uh, in uh, I think it was September 1986, and um, it, it caused they caused the Russia the Soviets to change their flying pattern. Um, but that's kind of all. Mm. Uh, helicopters flew lower as a consequence. Uh, and uh, and planes that were dropping bombs flew higher, 
which meant that their bombs were less well aimed and right. caused more civilian casualties. Um, but the uh, the idea that somehow the uh, the the Stinger sort of like you know single handedly tipped the balance of power, uh, Braithwaite argues that 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 is untrue, and uh, and he strikes me as very persuasive. One last question for you before we let you go, uh, Lebanon. Lebanon's economy is collapsing and the country's facing problems as serious as hunger, you know, as basic as hunger or a lack of adequate medical supplies. But it's it's not in the headlines, at least not here in the United States. In fact, it's barely even in the papers. I just read today that that Lebanon's currency has lost 90 percent of its value since 2019, if you can imagine such a thing. The country came to an agreement this morning with the International Monetary Fund for a $3 billion loan. How does a bankrupt country with no natural resources even begin to repay a $3 billion loan? It just seems that this is going to cause more problems than the country already has. Is there any way out of this for Lebanon? I guess when you're, when you're, when you're already at death's door, yeah. I guess, I, and you'll, you'll do anything. Is there any way out? I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, Lebanon, you know, it has a, it has a completely dysfunctional political system. Oh yeah, it does. I mean, that that's that's the Utterly. that's the essence of the problem. I mean, the completely dysfunctional. Uh, and I guess this is due to the you know due to the uh, the the Ottoman le- legacy, uh, in which um, the different communities and you know Lebanon has you know a, a multitude of, of religious communities, uh, Christian, Muslim, Shiite, Sunni. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and these, these, these groups have been at one another's throats for, uh, for generations. And, um, but yet they, they sort of reached a power sharing deal, uh, various deals over the years, which, um, since, since the civil war of the mid seventies, which led, which allowed, uh, the leaders of the groups to sort of like, you know, to sort of pocket the, 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 uh, the proceeds, but left the uh, the population itself increasingly ill-governed, you know, robbed, uh, just fleeced by a thousand different corrupt anchors, uh, actors, and uh, it's just a it's just a nightmare. And this the, the society just doesn't work. I mean, you know, the the famous Corniche, the the the, right. the beautiful uh, seaside, uh, you know, promenade. Yeah. The has Paris been, you know, it's, you know, it's been, you know, destroyed. inundated by garbage. Yeah. The pandemic obviously slashed tourism. Uh, the fall of oil and oil prices, you know, uh, slashed uh, capital inflows. The, the country itself produces nothing. Uh, uh, it's, you know, it's just, it's just a disaster. And, um, you know, what was it? Was it um, Keynes uh, said there's a, there's a lot of ruin in the country. Well, eventually you kind of run out of ruin and then you're just left with this, 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 this skeleton of a country. And that's what Lebanon is. But it's not the only case. I mean, I mean, look at I mean, I mean, uh, Sri Lanka is coming apart and increasing you know, in a similar way. Yeah, that's that's a good obser- observation. Sri Lanka's falling apart. In the same way that Lebanon is, yeah, and uh, and um, you know, and 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 Pakistan's is is heading in the same direction. Yep. So you know, so so there there are all these countries that are just sort of like you know, just turning into a into economic black holes, uh, and um, and I think that we'll see the phenomenon spread, in part due to the economic fallout from the uh, from the the uh, Ukrainian war. Yeah. I think that's probably right. We're going to have to leave it there. That was the voice of journalist and writer Daniel Lazar. 
You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take another one of those short breaks and come right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, getting into some dire economic predictions for the United States and asking uh, whether whether indeed recession is coming and what this one might feel like. Joining us for that conversation is Steve Grumbine, founder and CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action, and host of the Macro and Cheese podcast. Steve, good to talk to you after. It's been a while. It's been a few minutes, hasn't it? Yeah. How are you doing? Doing great. Very glad to have you back on the show. I, I want to start by asking you to to look into your magic ball. Uh, Deutsche Bank was the first major institution to predict the U.S. economy will be in recession by next year. They are specifically attributing this predicted recession to the rate hikes that the Fed has begun, although they don't seem to be criticizing that policy either. And so I I wonder if you think they're right, if we are going to be in recession by 2023 uh, and and who's to blame? So, you know, it's so hard because everybody is literally buried in this neoclassical economic framework. And so a lot of the stuff that comes out they're saying something and it's meaningful. You're just interpreting it through the Krugman lens Mm -hmm. that everybody's been completely inundated with. But you see the spigot's been turned off at the federal level. They're they're literally cutting spending. They've even reduced the spending or outright cut it out for COVID support in terms of like vaccine support and any other support that was going on with boosters, you name it. And You're watching as the inflation goes up, which is largely price gouging. It's not demand-driven. I wish it was demand-driven. It's not demand-driven. If it was demand-driven, we could solve that pretty easy by producing more products and services, hire more people, you name it. But that's not what's driving. You got price gouging at the oligarch level, and, and that's going throughout the fuel and, you know, hell, even the cost of poop has gone up. There was an article the other day about the rise in the cost of fertilizer that's Mm -hmm. going to bring about even more inflationary conditions. Yeah. So you've got a situation where the economy is stalling and we don't produce anything anymore. Our our, largely our economic uh, picture is because of money manager capitalism in the finance sector. Um, So these major corporations aren't producing anything. So supply chains aren't producing anything. So ultimately, it's just it's a game where we look good on paper. But in reality, recession is right around the corner with the lack of federal spending going into the economy. And, 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 you know, there's even people out there right now trying to say that Biden shouldn't be kicking the ball on the student debt bill out to August. Because if he let it, the spending go out, it would curb inflation by taking away the buying power of who? We, the little people, all the old people that went back to school during the last financial crisis that now suddenly are strapped student debt. The problem is is our buying power, Steve. That's, yeah. that's what the problem, that's what's overheating the economy. Isn't that humorous? I mean, that is ridiculous. So anyway, yes, we are going to hit a recession if there's not some sort of federal uh it, it, there's only one answer out of this, literally one answer out of that. 
And that is either A, uh, tax cuts to keep money in the economy, which you know sounds very Republican to an untrained ear, mm-hmm. or to federal spending, which we have plenty of things we could be spending on domestically as opposed to the war machine, which we seem to never run out of money for. Yeah. How should the public understand the government's ability to, I mean, it is almost daily that you have a new announcement of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, new military aid going to Ukraine. What what should people take from these sort of daily announcements that the government has found 300 million here, 100 million there, 500 million, you know, uh, under the cushion? Well, I, I think I think the first thing, and it's the, probably the most challenging, chaotic moment of them all, and that is realizing that tilting at windmills, thinking that our government is actually there to serve us to begin with, creates all this dissonance with our understanding of what's happening. We're we're in this like weird place where, of course, our government would take care of us if it if it knew we needed help, right? Of course, they would. But it's not doing that. And it's because it's, you know, we we went from the plantation mindset to an invisible plantation, an invisible prison called debt prison. And and we've pretty much put every one of us in jail, so to speak, in this this debt prison. And and so their idea of being able to take care of we the people um, is really not really there. It's, It's really there to keep labor disciplined, to behave as such to meet the needs of capital. Whatever capital wants, it's there to do. And so you have to break free of whatever you thought the government was there for, whatever they taught you in elementary school, and you've got to grow up Peter Pan, Count Chocula, and and recognize that the government serves capital. It doesn't serve you and I. And so once you get past that, you realize that the government really does have no limit to its amount of money that it can spend because it creates that money out of thin air when it spends. Article 1, Section 8 of your U.S. Constitution gives power of the first to Congress. Mm-hmm. And so when Congress spends, it, it, it spends on whatever it deems necessary. Well, guess what? I go back to that chaotic moment. We are not what the government cares about. The government cares about geopolitical power. It cares about its oligarchs. It cares about its big businesses. All those global corporations that it goes to war to clear markets for, yeah, that's what it cares about. And so once you shed that like neophyte view, that that naive view that they're there to serve us and they're just being blocked by those meanie Republicans, Mm -hmm. once you get past that, it, it, you can you can make a better you can have a better clearer understanding of what you're looking at. Your lens will be unfogged, and I think that's really what you're seeing. And and that's not conspiracy. That is just straight straight truth. I mean, there's it's hard to look at the way that this government has operated and conclude anything else. And I want to come back. You know, you talked about government spending. I mean, of course, what the Fed was doing uh, for the past two years has been government spending. It has just been government spending to particular to particular entities. Right. I mean, the entire way that covid aid was structured for the most part, other than the, you know, couple of checks that individuals got was not to give aid directly to people, but to filter it through employers. And of course, what has happened, there, there was massive fraud uh, by the people who were who were getting that. And so again, yeah, we, we, have, we don't have a, uh, a demand problem that, as you say, would be easier to solve. That's right. I mean, I, I want you to think about how funny what you just said is. If you consider the fact that government spending, 
goes out the door through the treasury. And the Fed keystrokes those things into the treasury's accounts. Then the treasury spends on whatever Congress has stepped up to the plate for. If there's a bill that Congress agreed to, then that treasury makes those payments right there. Okay. Well, if, if the treasury is making those payments, the person that gets that first dollar from the treasury has got a very privileged position. It's kind of like being the guy that gets the first round of cocaine. I know we're not here to support <laughs> cocaine. Oh, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> speak for yourself. Well, they start passing it down and dude steps on it with some baking soda. And the next guy steps on it with some rat poisoning, mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, keep stepping on it, right? Well, that's what happens with our, our money as it's spent into the economy. That first dollar is a privileged dollar. It, 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 in effect, they get to dictate what the economy is. It's like the government has has handed away its role in shaping the lives of citizens by handing it over to corporate interests. And they, in turn, dictate who wins and who loses because they're the place where the government. It's like the wellspring from which all money cometh is not from banks. It's from the federal government spending that money into existence. And so as the government is stopping doing that. Many of us are already strapped to the gills in private debt. And because of that private debt being there, we don't have enough buying power ourselves to borrow. Let's all go into debt together and just create a great world, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they're leaving. And so when you tap out, when you give people so much student debt, so much housing debt, so many other debts, and, and the federal government stops, you're left with only one other source, and that would be if you're an exporter. Well, the U.S. hasn't been an exporter in, God knows, 20-plus years. We, we are a net importing nation to the tune of $500 billion plus a year. So that delta is even there. So you think about a recession, that creeping, that slowing down of the economy, it's all happening there because aggregate demand is going to diminish because people's buying power, their agency is gone. With the cost of gasoline, which we all need for our daily lives until they get smart and come up with an actual energy policy. I mean, we, we have no prayer right now. Steve, I wanted to ask you, you know, Deutsche Bank is not predicting that this is going to be a recession like uh, what we saw after 2008. They're sort of saying uh, it'll be recession light. Don't worry about it. It's not going to last that long. Uh, but we also at the same time, you know, we, we have historic uh, official lows in first time unemployment claims, you know, that it's the lowest in 50 years or something like that. You have unemployment uh, officially at 3.6%. And so I'm wondering what, what you think it's going to look like if we have a sudden uptick in unemployment, which we know is the official number uh, traditionally undercounts, and, and what you think this coming recession could look like if you think it's going to be uh, like what we saw about a decade ago or something different. Well, the, the recession that happened a decade ago was brought about by elite control fraud. You know, that, that right there was countrywide and everyone shorting, um, you know, shorting the mortgage industry, you know, buying up the CDOs. And, and it really, really brought about conditions that they, they just weren't prepared to handle. Um, I think that would it be exactly like that? I don't know if it will or not, because if you look, the properties are being bought up by folks like BlackRock. So their goal is to keep those properties elevated to gouge for rents, uh, et cetera. So do I think it'll be like the last time? No, no, I don't think it'll be the same. I think, though, that it doesn't really matter in terms of like the big numbers. I think it really matters about the little people. You know, most of us are still living hand to mouth. 
Most of us don't even have 400 bucks in the bank to survive a, a crisis. If you got a flat tire, would you have enough money to fix it? So I think that the recession impacts people very differently. And I think because we haven't really taken any steps to uh, eliminate poverty or eliminate uh, the wantingness of humanity, um, even through this pandemic, we, we had every opportunity to change that and we didn't. So I think that you're going to see a lot of people at the bottom truly suffer. And I think you're going to see a lot of people at that lower middle class truly suffer. I think that, uh, honestly, that jobs, um, you're already dealing with some stagflation where wages haven't uh, risen with the inflation. So I think that you're, you're looking at the conditions um, th that are going to create a, a, a fairly sizable recession. Will it be like last time? No. Will it be major enough for people to really start dying? Uh, yes. I think that we're looking at a very serious situation. So I, I would like to see our federal government step in. Um, but you see, a lot of good leftists don't understand economics, and they're out there thinking, oh, it's good to raise interest rates. Never mind, it's just a basic income for the wealthy. Right. Uh, they, you know, hey, we need to cut spending. Why? What the, why? why? Why would you want us to cut spending? <laughs> they don't know. They don't understand. So this, this, is, this is where we're at, man. The good guys are fighting. It's like, it's like a rogue strain of an autoimmune disorder eating itself alive. It's just crazy. I want to ask, I mean, this is maybe sort of rearranging the deck chairs, right? But I did want to ask if, if you, what you make of uh, the supposed upheaval at the Federal Trade Commission. You had Politico running a story about the rocky start that Lena Khan and her chief of staff, Jen Howard, have gotten off to, uh, apparently alienating staff there uh, by telling them to cancel speaking engagements for a couple of months and, and stop hobnobbing with the people that they're supposed to be regulating. Should we take some heart at this? You know, I... I don't know. I mean, I, I think about it like this. Uh, you know, I go back to the SEC and all these other watchdog groups that are there that are supposed to make sure that things are done correctly. They're all underfunded. None of them are actually doing the job. They're all kind of in this weird nebulous state where they're too comfortable with the people they're supposed to be actually managing. And, you know, you can get a little bit of a willy out of, you know, that them kind of cutting some of those things. But I don't believe that. I think that it's just sort of a fart in the wind with all due respect. I think that the reality is that we need a real independent auditable groups that are out there that are really doing the work of trust busting, anti-monopoly behavior, going after bad actors in the trade sector, going bad actors in the in, uh, investor sector, all of those things. We need real legitimate countervailing uh, you know, groups to really be true watchdogs with teeth, not just with gums, but with teeth that can prevent it. So do I make much out of it? Nah, not really. I mean, yesterday we had Hakeem Jeffries asking oil companies to be patriotic yeah. and lower prices. So, you know, it seems out of like the goodness of their hearts. Yes, exactly. See, seems like we should just be asking nicely, Steve. Uh, we've just got another minute left. So I want to let you uh, tell our listeners what new projects you're working on and where they can go to find you these days. Well, I am really, really excited. I've been doing uh, co-hosting over at Status Coup on Tuesday nights with Jordan Cheriton. I do a show called Let's Get Ready to Grumble on Thursday nights tonight, as a matter of fact, over at Status Coup as well. But I also am CEO and president of Real Progressives, and I, I do my podcast, Macro and Cheese. It's released every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. on any of your favorite uh, podcast uh, platforms. 
And I do a no, new show Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon called The Rogue Scholar. Not Rogue Scholar, but Rogue Scholar. And uh, I challenge everybody, come check it out. Uh, love to have you all join us at Real Progress in Action on YouTube. And uh, really, really appreciate you guys having me on. I, John, I, I know a friend of mine out there, um, Eric Kessner, who's in D.C., has uh, run into you. A good guy, friend of mine. And- yes, sir. Good guy. Good guy and a, and a committed um, activist. Yeah, Steve, you've been very, very busy. I caught that Rogue Scholar on YouTube this morning. I was watching it. So everybody, ch- check out Steve. You can find him lots of different places. That was Steve Grumbine. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with more for you right after this. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. There's a lot happening on the domestic front. James Biden, the president's brother, apparently received $65,000 from a Chinese company as part of a contract negotiated by Hunter Biden, who got $100,000 in the contract. Incidents of COVID are beginning to rise again as a subvariant of the Omicron strain uh, begins to spread. It arrived here from Europe. A nurse in North Carolina was indicted in the death of a prisoner, while the guards who apparently beat him to death were not. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said that he will ship undocumented aliens by bus to Washington, where they'll be dropped off at the Capitol steps. This is awful. This is like treating people like yeah. props. Chattel. Terrible. Kenosha, Wisconsin, the site of protest two years ago that caused extensive damage, elected its first Republican county executive ever. And we mentioned at the start of the show that the FBI has arrested two men posing as Department of Homeland Security agents. Was this just a couple of weirdos or something more sinister? You know my position. We're joined by Brian Doyle. Brian's going to set us straight on a lot of these issues. He's a political analyst and sports enthusiast. I'm glad because I have some baseball questions to bring up. Brian was the assignments editor at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Brian, welcome back. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate appreciate being there with you also, Michelle. It's been a long time, Brian. I'm so glad that you could join us. Uh, and there's a lot to talk about today. Let's start with Hunter Biden and uh, James Biden. Um, God forgive me, I never heard of James Biden until two days ago. <laughs> I just never paid any attention. I had only vaguely heard about him until until a couple of days ago. He's the president's younger brother. He's a businessman. And he generally keeps a low profile. But now we've learned that he was a part of Hunter Biden's contract with a Chinese company, and it turns out that U.S. banks flagged at least 150 transactions initiated by either Hunter or James Biden as concerning. This sounds pretty serious on the surface of things, but it's not necessarily indicative of a crime. So what exactly are we looking at here? You're right. It's not necessarily indicative of a crime. But, I, you know, when Joe Biden became vice president. I didn't know very little about his brother. I started to hear a few things at the time. And certainly when he became president, I said, oh, you know, what's the crazy brother going to be? And the reason <laughs> I say that is, this history shows us that for whatever reason, political families in many yep. have, you know, particularly presidents, end up with kind of a, you know, a goofball siblings. 
Yes. Now, one of the reasons for that has been cited, uh, contributing reasons for the Watergate break-in was uh, President Nixon thought that the uh, Democrats had some kind of information with regard to a loan that his brother uh, had gotten, uh, Donald Nixon, for uh, an investment in some failed bowling alleys. And hence, you know, Nixon being the paranoid individual that he was, uh, was concerned about that. Uh, Sam Johnson, Lyndon Johnson's brother, yeah. was an alcoholic and would blab and talk to anybody. LBJ basically kept an eye on him by putting him upstairs in the White House for the four plus years he was there. Wow. Look at look at George Herbert Walker Bush's son, Neil, you know, very yes. involved in the financial collapse of Silverado, the the savings and loan in the, in the 90s. Yes, it's Billy Carter. Billy Carter got his own beer brand. Exactly. I believe it was either a loan or a gift or something from Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. I mean, you know, talk about, you know, household headaches. Um, now, in my opinion, uh, brother, brother of the president uh, doesn't seem like the most successful businessman that's ever walked to Europe. Uh, although I, looking at the, the variety of uh, media reports on the loan that he got uh, from a Ukrainian uh, connected businessman, he was uh, actually, uh, his parents left Ukraine, he went to West Germany and so forth, and came to the U.S. and became very successful. And he was a pretty well-known socialite businessman in Delaware, and the, the president has known him since his Senate days. And he's con- he contributed to the president's campaign back in 87 when he first ran for president. Um, and his son, who now take, has taken over that business, not only has contributed to uh, President Biden's campaign, he also contributed to Donald Trump's campaign. <laughs> the What was Hunter Biden doing in China? I don't know. Uh, what was his uh, uncle doing there with him? I don't know. They're, Report that they're trying to get this Chinese energy company to, you know, maybe um, help them in getting projects in the U.S. or with uh, Chinese capital investments in the U.S. and so forth. That may be the case, and there may be nothing to that. But I remember uh, Hunter Biden in one of his interviews said, you know, in the long run, the Burisma uh, interview should not, you know, the remind Baldwin with Burisma shouldn't have done the appearance didn't look good. My 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 thought on that is. You you got to be a blind man not to see that. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you know. It's but there's an old adage: the capacity for self delusion is infinite, and I think that's uh, exactly what is the case with Hunter. Now, is has he done anything illegal, or are there tax implications? He should absolutely be looked into. I don't care if he's a Democratic president or Republican administration. You know, watchdogs are important. Watchdogs are important in any society. Mm-hmm. And, but you also have to be realistic. If you look at what uh, the Republicans, when they controlled the House and Senate, they had 33 House committee investigations into Benghazi. Now, that wasn't financial. That was a separate issue. And they all came to the same conclusion. Uh, there was very little that could have been done in, in, the, in the period of time they had before, sadly, the ambassador and those, those uh, gentlemen were, were killed. So you have to, the broader picture is, should it be looked at? Totally, yes. But when you're issuing reports, don't issue them before you have the facts. My old boss, I had a great boss, he used to say, whenever there was a problem, what are the facts? We deal in those. Yep, that's it. Don't make suppositions, don't make 
uh, clouded accusations dealing the facts. I look forward to seeing where this goes, actually. I'm, I'm very curious myself. I do, too. I feel like because, you know, I don't have any skin in the game and it's not my job to defend Hunter Biden. I'm interested to see what these investigations uh, finally reveal. I agree with you. I'm, I'm on. We're on the same page there because people need to know transparency is important. You know, we, we it sure is in any. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Yep. Let's switch over to to this new covid subvariant. We We keep reading about it, that it's in Europe. It's coming from Europe to the United States. It's in the United States. But we're not seeing a. a a, a, a concurrent uh, raise in the number, or rise, I should say, in the number of people being hospitalized, at least not according to uh, today's New York Times. And in the meantime, a new study is showing, this really, this really took the air out of my balloon this morning, a new study is showing that uh, the second booster provides protection for only two or three weeks. I was so disappointed to see that. And Forbes magazine says that the CDC is scrambling to tweak the COVID vaccine ahead of what is expected to be another wave that's coming in the fall, a wave of new COVID infections. Should we be worried about this, do you think, or is this just what we should be expecting now as we see a transition from a pandemic to an endemic uh, situation with COVID? Well, I know a little bit about uh, viruses because I've always been interested in that. Uh, my father uh, lived through the 19. 19- 18 Spanish flu. Oh, yeah. My grandfather lost three sisters in that one. My grandmother caught it. My father stayed up four nights in a row boiling hot water on, in pots on a coal stove because that's all they had to uh, keep her alive. And she she was one of the uh, 80% that survived. If 100 people caught it, 20 died. And that all has always piqued me. You know, Ebola, all of those whole variety of uh, uh, lots of fever and so forth. And viruses... Viruses want the host. We're the host. It's the only way they can live. So they constantly change. Now, the thing about viruses also is as they mutate, they tend to be more catchable, but not necessarily more lethal. Uh, in, in the B2, I think, is showing that. It is, they said it's highly catchable, but I think part of the reason there's been fewer hospitalizations is we do have some immunity through the vaccines that have been provided. And in general, it's probably gotten a little weaker. The, the flu shot we get every year, that's a derivative of the Spanish flu from 1918 yeah. or 16, because that has weakened. It adjusted and we've adjusted. So that's why you get your flu shot. They make a variant of the, of the coming uh, mutation for us to take. So I, and I, I do think ultimately there's the research is showing more and more. I think we're going to... It's going to be an endemic with something we're going to have to live with and that we'll have to get some type of vaccine every year or maybe every other year, depending on the, the frequency. And, and, I, and one thing for sure, should, be, we, should, be, we, should we be worried about it? Yes. Always keep your eye on the canary in the coal mine. That's uh, my, my own personal yeah. my own My own experience is well, my, my cousin George, who I was close to. I, I love George. He was awesome. George was the second person in the state of Ohio to die of COVID. When it first arrived in the United States and it, it finally had a name and people were freaking out, George came home from work one Friday. He worked for the city of Warren, Ohio, not feeling well, got worse over the weekend. Monday, he went to the doctor. The doctor admitted him into the hospital. Wednesday, 
he went into a coma and he died the following Monday. And he was healthy. He didn't have any, you know, outstanding medical issues. He was just a couple of years older than me. And so, you know, if if that means that that I need to get shots and boosters and boosters on my boosters, that's that's fine. I don't want to end up like George. Fine right now. I have no problem with that. I am a strong believer in medicine and science. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's switch over to this situation in North Carolina, which has upset me greatly. A grand jury in North Carolina, Brian, has indicted a prison nurse on a charge of involuntary manslaughter in the 2019 death of a black man. But it declined to indict five former prison guards involved in this incident. The 56-year-old prisoner died on December 4th, 2019, after a medical emergency at the Forsyth County Jail. Body camera videos showed him struggling with guards to get up from where he was laying on the floor. He was calling out for his mother and yelling, I can't breathe, more than 20 times as they were restraining him. The guy had been arrested several days earlier on some minor drug charge. An autopsy said that he died from a brain injury caused when his heart stopped beating and his brain was deprived of oxygen. He asphyxiated while being restrained with his arms behind his back and his legs folded up and toward his back. I suppose I understand the nurse's indictment. She didn't intervene to help him. But I don't at all understand the decision to not indict these guards. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's a twofold situation with some other different implications. I know a little bit about uh, the prison situation and in particular about medical care within the prison. You know, they, the, a lot of the prisons in the U.S., particularly at the state level, are run by these private corporations. That's right. Geo Corporation, uh, CCC, they're a bunch of terrible ones. And they're, they're, the level of medical care, as, as someone once put it, if you're a doctor or a nurse, what do you, why are you working in a prison? Amen. Social conscience, and that's what you want to do. Uh, I know of a, a wonderful doctor uh, at a prison in Florida. She had narcolepsy. When she would, you'd go in to see her, you had to keep tapping on the table to keep her awake. Uh, there, there's a situation where there were nurses, uh, another individual working with a friend on a case, uh, an attorney, he, uh, he has a number of medical problems and he gets like nine different pills, medications that take day. And one day she came, just gave, gave them to him and he looked at it and said, these aren't mine. These are not mine. She goes, yes, they are. Just take them. And he complained to one of the guards. He didn't take them. He'd been given um, drugs to combat HIV. Oh, my God. And he, you know, he has high blood pressure, he has any, you know, diabetic, all this. So, you know, the quality of people you get there, first of all, is not the highest. Now, I'm not saying all of them, okay? That's right. fair. However, the guards, the people, the correctional officers, I think there's a legitimate uh, argument that the training they receive, I, mean, I, know, I know of a correctional guard in Florida, you know what her previous experience in security was? The hairdresser. Yeah, there was a guy in uh, in the prison where I was. He was delivering a pizza to the prison, and he saw a, a guy running into the woods. So when he dropped off the pizza, he said, hey, listen, I saw a guy running into the woods. You guys might want to check it out. Turned out it was it was a guy from the, a prisoner from the minimum security camp escaping. Uh, they went and caught him down the road a couple of hundred feet. And uh, and they said, hey, you should apply to be a guard. And he did. He was a Domino's delivery guy before he was a prison guard. Oh, yeah. Well, there's there's you know, there are also some infamous cases in, in particularly Florida. Florida is beyond egregious. It's 
Uh, next, California is the largest in Texas, I think. Texas might even be less now because they've established a program for early release uh, that has the highest prison population, particularly in the state of states. Uh, where at Florida State Prison, one of the original big ones they had, uh, the guards were caught on camera. They they just decided to have a beat, what they called a beat fest. They went and started beating up inmates indiscriminately. Ugh. And prior to that, oh my. no longer existed in Florida anymore. They used to have these boot camps for juvenile offenders. And there was a 15-year-old African-American boy who suffered from sickle cell. And he was being taken by the guard to medical and the nurses with them and so forth. And he collapsed and they, they just let him, they, they kept screaming, get up, get up, get up. This was caught on camera. 2020 years ago did an did a incredible uh, segment on this. While the nurse stood there smoking her cigarette. Oh my God. He died, that young man. Uh, eventually, because of that and other abuses within those camps, uh, those those camps no longer exist. But, Senator James Webb, the former Senator James Webb from Virginia, at one point uh, wanted to have a commission to study the condition of the prisons in the, and in this case, it would be federal prisons, but which you know is very similar. And one of the things he really wanted to look at was the training and the qualifications of the people who were the correctional officers, because I guarantee you the standards are not very high, and uh, it's a dangerous situation. Uh, in some ways, to them too. Yeah, not just prisons. Sure. Anyway, that's that's a horrible situation. Why those guards weren't charged? I don't know. State to state, they do these things. You know, what what are they charging her for? Because she didn't provide medical assistance. Well, maybe she couldn't get them. Yeah, her her lawyer says that the nurse. I mean, you, you know, her lawyer says the nurse was ordered from the room right. and wasn't allowed back in, and says this is the only person who tried to save this man, uh, who guards had bound. And left is sitting, you know, sitting in a chair in a restrained in a position. position. Yeah, yeah. For, for an hour. And so, yeah, we'll see that her lawyer is saying she did everything she could and the guards were not allowed, didn't give her access to this man. We'll, we'll see as her trial proceeds. Yeah. You know, that's the thing you say that, Michelle, because uh, I know of an instance of, of the gentleman I talked to earlier with the getting the wrong med- medication. He fainted. And uh, in, in this instance, some of the other inmates, they, they, he was older, so they, other inmates kind of looked after him. They, you know, they, and they were there, and they notified the guards, notified medical, and they come, the guards come up. They come over to these other inmates and says, "Get the hell away from them! You're not allowed to go near them." And you know, the nurse was it, it was just crazy. You know, it's just crazy. Wow. Let me ask you also about <laughs> Greg Abbott, the, uh, the the governor of Texas. You know, interestingly enough, Texas is one of those states where the governor really doesn't have very much authority. There's not a whole lot that he can do. Uh, the authority. It's the lieutenant governor that has. Exactly. It's the lieutenant governor that has all the power in Texas. And these various commissioners, the railroad commissioner, the insurance commissioner, the agricultural commissioner. So he's decided to make some news for himself by taking a bunch of undocumented uh, immigrants. And uh, he's saying he's going to put them on buses and send them to Washington and drop them off at the Capitol steps. Well, realistically, you can't get anywhere near the Capitol steps with a bus these days. But that's not really the issue. The issue is he's trying to make a political statement here. It's a publicity stunt. But do you think it'll lead to anything? Because we're in this weird political position or weird political period anyway, where it seems very, very easy to criticize uh, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, A lot of what these criticisms are is sticking 
the Democrats are looking at uh, a very rough time in November. Do you think this can turn into something? Well, it, it, it you know, we, we have struggled as a uh, legislative body up there on the Hill, uh, House and Senate, with immigration for years now. One of the problems right now, and I do think Abbott's just, uh, it's a publicity stunt. I mean, you've already seen these reports where it sent the National Guardsmen down to the border, and they've had five suicides. Right. And and the guards are saying, you know, there's no food, it's freezing cold, you know, it's just insane. Um, he's a bit of a showman, always has been, um, but that aside, can something come of it? Well, all he's doing right now, if, if he's going to do this, is pour gasoline on a burning inferno. Uh, immigration is, is a hot issue. Yes, it's a number two concern of every poll behind, obviously, inflation. And the, the, the rules have changed somewhat. Uh, you know, the, the House Freedom Caucus are the, are the extremists within the Republican Party. And I can't say any other way that that's exactly what they are looking at what they do. They blocked the uh, uh Compromise that George W. Bush and I believe Ted Kennedy and John McCain put together on immigration reform a number of years back. Uh, was it perfect? As we know, no legislation is. I mean, one of the things in there was a 15-year waiting uh, period. You had to be in the country before you could even apply for citizenship to become a citizen. That's a long time. Oh, yeah. That is a long time. There have been there are people in this country been here longer than that, paying taxes, doing you know, keeping their nose clean, working hard, and uh, should should people get amnesty? No, but there can be a, a, a reasonable length of time, and if you can show you've had that time, okay, you can apply for that citizenship. So one of the things is that the the rules have changed under the previous rules before this article or, or uh, executive uh, number forty two that. President Trump put in place, there was a certain amount of waiting period. That's been changed. It's been made longer. And it's, it's you know, it hurts the people who truly are fleeing either threat or persecution or poverty or war. Uh, as we now know, we have 2,000 Ukrainians at the border. That's right. So, you know, I hope it gives some type of impetus. Instead of playing, you know, uh, getting their little soundbite, uh, Governor Abbott's trying, and others, uh, they could cut the, cut the BS out and get serious about this. And I mean, there's more than enough people, uh, I think, uh, good people of good faith, try, who would work together of different political views to try to uh, get this worked out. But that a lot of that remains to be seen. It may just be more posturing. We're in a midterm election year, and I'm fearful that that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Brian, I have got to ask you about uh, this FBI arrest of these two guys here in Washington impersonating DHS officers. They apparently went online, bought uniforms, bought gear, like tactical gear, and they developed, I'm going to use a spy term here, they developed these four um, uh, Secret Service agents who live in a building. Apparently, this building by uh, National Stadium has a lot of people in it. Uh, from the Secret Service, DHS, the Navy, and the Pentagon. They developed this relationship. They started giving them gifts, $40,000 worth of free rent, a new TV, uh, surveillance equipment, night vision goggles, a case for, uh, for an assault rifle, and they got caught, and they got arrested. The, the easy 
the easy finger to point is to say, oh, they're just a couple of wannabes, you know, cop wannabes. They're, they're just weirdos. I don't believe that for a second. This is a classic intelligence operation. It, it seems to me, this is exactly what a CIA officer would do, for example, when developing somebody that he eventually wants to recruit. You buy the person gifts, you become friendly, you go out to dinner and drinks and hanging out, and maybe you go fishing or you go to a ball game or whatever. What do you think about this? This is just too weird. It, it just seems too sophisticated to me to be a couple of wannabes. Well, I think the Russians have the term for it, compromation. Exactly. And it's, I, I agree with you. I think this, there's more than meets the eye here. Uh, I don't think these guys are wannabes. And, you know, it's the old Watergate adage, follow the money. Where do they get all that money? Where do they get? Exactly. It's not like you're just picking up the tab for a couple of beers. A $40,000 apartment, rent free rent for a year and all this equipment. Where's that money coming from? Don't put that on your uh, visa card. Exactly. So, yeah, this has, has to go further. And I have uh, dear friends. And in my case, my late uncle was a Secret Service agent for 35 years, and my cousin, cousin, 33. And I know friends through them and, and others. This, this is really uh, sadly and disheartening to the Secret Service because of a variety of uh, bad news, you might say, in recent years. Uh, who these four agents were, well, I. I my feeling is, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but more than likely, uh, their careers at the agency are over and maybe in other places. Uh, I would agree. You just don't do this. Uh, I know where that building is, by the way. And yeah, it's handy for everyone, uh, all those different uh, situations. But no, this is this is not good. This is not good. And ultimately, the key is to find out what the hell were they doing it for? What was the ultimate purpose? Yes, they had... I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm just pointing this out as an observation. Um, they had Iranian names. They were American, apparently, but they both had Iranian names. Anyway, final thoughts. Today is finally opening day of baseball season. What are you looking for today? Well, uh, we're, I think our, the game here is in Washington is canceled, which is too bad. Yes, yes, against the Mets. Yeah. To see, uh, you know, the league has been through a lot of turmoil in the offseason with the lockout and so forth, which, unfortunately, they saved themselves this time. You know, it, it would behoove everyone from their standpoint if uh, everyone got off to a decent start. There was you know, no controversies and so forth. Whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. And I know there's some talk about how the government should take over the leagues and have some Right. I was going to ask you about that. Decision on who the manager's supposed to be? Come on. You know, these are businesses. <laughs> NFL is a major business. The NBA is an international business, as the NFL is gradually becoming as, as well. And baseball is, too. Okay, well, let, let me interrupt you on that point. What do you think about the idea of an NFL-style salary cap in order to make small market teams more uh, competitive? The, the Yankees, for example, have more money than God. They can buy every serious ball player that they want. And my beloved Pittsburgh Pirates don't stand a chance. Is there any way to level the playing field? Well, well I've always believed in that. I think that's a, a fair compromise. Uh, with the with the players' associations, uh, one of the things the NBA did was, and the NFL, 
your, your rookie contract is X number of years, okay? You, you don't get more money than X, Y, and Z or whatever. It's basically flat and even. Now, it can vary from position to position. If you're coming out of college, you're a guard or a quarterback or a receiver. Fine. But after that, then you're a free agent. Yeah. And, and then you, if you've proven yourself, you can see what you're worth it. I think that works better. The free agency setup in baseball, I think, is really poor. Uh, and as far as sharing revenues, I agree with you there. You know, again, the, the genius of Pete Rozelle was he got all the owners to share the same revenue. So a team like Green Bay in the smallest market in the league could survive. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it otherwise. Uh, there's no way. At Pittsburgh, you know, a lot of these smaller market teams, you know, somehow, you know, they say, oh, well, they can survive by doing this or doing that. And then, you know, uh, um, Billy Bean comes along with right. Oh, you can do it that way. Not everybody can do it that way. That's right. So, Scouting, scouting is an inexact science. Any scout or general manager would tell you that. You hope and pray you make the right selections, you find the, the gold out there and athletic talent, but you, there's nothing given. There's nothing given. Yep. Brian Doyle, thanks for joining us. Brian is a political analyst and sports enthusiast. He was the assignments editor at Time Magazine and former deputy press secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. There's still a couple of other things. Uh, yeah, do you want to talk on. about this NBC story that I, we alluded I, to at the beginning I would like of the show? To, yes, uh, yes, it is. It's, it's an important one. Four, it took four reporters to write the story. One of them, our own Ken Delanian, who we we talked about. Oh, not our own, of course. Uh, we spoke about it at, at the very beginning. But this is, you know, it is a story that says what you probably could have guessed if you were paying any attention, which is that uh, U.S. officials who are leaking supposed intelligence to to the media are not even necessarily leaking intelligence that they have that is actually intelligence. As you were saying this morning, it's analysis, not intelligence. It doesn't have to be good. And this article is, uh, look, you have a paragraph in here that says uh, it's a bold and so far successful strategy. Nowhere in this article is there a a moment of, of any of these reporters saying, huh, should we consider that maybe it's exactly. not a great precedent to set that the media is congratulating the administration on using it so successfully as an arm of what they, again, explicitly call an information war? Exactly. And one of the things that they mention here, you know, we had a million headlines a couple of weeks ago about how Russia was asking China for for military hardware for weapons. Now you have, you know, you have uh, officials, European and, and U.S. officials saying, eh, yeah, that was never true. Mm-hmm. We just like thought maybe they were going to do it and right. we didn't want them to. So what we did was give a bunch of, you know, leak a bunch of things to, to you guys, knowing that you were not going to question them and you were just going to repeat it. And again, it is re- one, I mean, sure, report on this phenomenon, but I would like to see somewhere in any of this reporting uh, a little bit of introspection and, and some asking yeah. what the role of the press should that, be. That's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned before we started the show that until passage of the National Defense Authorization Act in 2011, it was illegal to propagandize the American people. Mm -hmm. And now it's not. And so we see it all the time. And this is one of those examples. Yeah. I mean, again, it is not surprising that this is happening, that the administration is attempting to do this. It is surprising that basically the media is going, hey, look at us. We're doing we're doing a great Mm -hmm. job helping out the government in its in its goals without question. Right. The other thing, of course, that people are pointing out about this article that I think you could speak to, John, is uh, it's headed in a break with the past. 
U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia. What? Ridiculous. What? Yeah, doesn't, Absolutely doesn't there, isn't there ridiculous. Isn't there a long history of this kind of thing? A history that goes back to the creation of the CIA in 1947. Yeah. 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 Outrageous. You know, and it's not just the CIA. It's also the FBI. For many years, for decades, um, Hollywood just would not put on a TV series or uh, produce a movie if it didn't get the thumbs up from J. Edgar Hoover. Mm -hmm. And it was something that Hoover was very, very proud of because the FBI always has to be the good guy, right? Yeah. You can't say, oh, they, you know, executed uh, John Dillinger and and uh, Babyface Nelson and all these other guys in 1934. No, they, the, they got their man. The G-men got their man. It always has to be positive. And the same thing with the CIA now. You know, the CIA has got a, uh, an office in the, within the Office of Public Affairs whose job it is solely to work with Hollywood studios on movies and television series that make the CIA look good. You can't have a series or a movie where the CIA is the bad guy. Yeah. They just won't let it go. No, it's remarkable. And then people people balk at the suggestion that we are being propagandized from from a lot of different angles. And yet this is this is happening. We just don't really talk yeah. about it very uh-huh. much. And of course, you know, it is it is one thing to to go after the fact and, and try to uh, try, try to confirm some some of these reports, right? We talked about the the New York Times uh, confirming reports of Russian POWs being executed by by Ukrainian right. soldiers. But it would so great, good job, terrific, terrific going to do that. It would be better if you treated any of this information with skepticism from the start. From the right? beginning, exactly. You shouldn't be taking any state as Dan Lazar was saying, as guests have said before. Don't take any statement from any belligerent in this in this war uh, with anything but a grain of salt. That's and right. the U.S. is very much a, a, a you know part of it right and every time we have a conflict and admittedly we're not a belligerent in this conflict directly exactly but but, but uh, indirectly very yeah, much so. very much so I'm, but you would think that we would have learned our lesson by now at least you would think the american media would have learned its lesson yeah that you've got to verify before you publish yeah you know we're, we're still that, talking if, about the ghost of uh kiev and the you know, F you Russian Navy ship and all this I mean, other stuff. If it is your aim to try to present an accurate picture in real time, yes. that's what you should do. If, if it's, it's your not aim. your aim, exactly. then you just go write stories saying, hey, look at what a great job we're doing as a, as a, a part of the arsenal in an information war and not, you know, as, a, as an adversarial press uh, trying that to figure right. out what is the truth. It's pretty it's pretty wild. The other interesting uh, tidbit of news that, that passed across my screen earlier was uh, Mark Milley, top U.S. general, yeah. testifying uh, before a Senate hearing that Ukraine is effectively using landmines right. in the conflict with Russia. And of course, we have had a, a, a spate of stories saying, isn't it terrible that Russia is using landmines in Ukraine? Nobody should be using landmines. Sure, I don't use landmines, right? I mean, I again, I lived in Laos in a, a right. country that was bombed, bombed landmines. to hell. Yeah, landmines and cluster bombs. It is they are awful, but they are awful in both hands. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't. Is anyone? Is there going to be any discussion of this of, of right. landmine use in general and not not only used to demonize one side of right. this conflict, which of course shouldn't be using landmines? And, and he said it admiringly. Yeah. Like, wow, the Ukrainians, they're really kicking butt with they're these landmines. They're doing a great job. Look at, look at how effective these tactics have been. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
One of the things that I didn't have a chance to uh, to ask Brian about was this election in Kenosha, Wisconsin. It, now, again, this is one of those apparently minor elections that are actually more important than they appear at first glance mm-hmm. because they're they're they might be indicative of the start of a trend. So Kenosha, Wisconsin is a traditionally democratic uh, city. It, and uh, they they don't elect a mayor. They elect a county council and a council executive, just like we have in uh, Arlington, Virginia, for example. There's no mayor, but there's a, uh, a county council. So Kenosha was the scene of these violent protests two summers ago. Uh, BLM was there, and that's where Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed these two protesters. Kenosha voted for every Democratic president from Jimmy Carter to Barack Obama. Um, It went for Donald Trump twice, the first time by about 368 votes, the second time by 3,000 votes. Now it's elected its first ever Republican county executive. So the press is saying, oh, my God, it's because of Black Lives Matter. People are upset because their city got burned down. And then Kyle Rittenhouse came and shot these two people and they need law and order. I don't think that's it at all. I think that the American body politic is constantly changing. And this is one of those changes that that Kenosha has been trending Republican for the last 12 years or so, and now it's made it. I think that's what it is. I don't think it's Black Lives Matter's fault. I don't think it's Kyle Rittenhouse's fault. I think it's just some people move into the town, some people move out of the town, they change their voter registration. Now it happens to be a very slightly Republican town. I also think another part of this is that you you don't have, a, you know, of the two viable parties that exist right now in our political system. That's the more you, important You point. don't have an alternative to our traditional approach to uh, crime and violence, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because no one, no, the Democratic Party never seriously... Uh, attempted to really talk about what it would mean to to defund the police, to send any of this uh, money elsewhere to to more uh, uh, forcefully and robustly fund other social programs and public health programs. That's of course, right. they're not going to do that. So what you have in these two parties is the party that's, you know, been doing policing, been police friendly, been throwing money at cops and the party that's doing the light version of yes. it. You don't actually have yes. an alternative. And so, again, if the alternative is going to be like, some cops or more cops were not giving you any other answer to crime. And you continue to beat people over the head with this idea that incarceration prevents crime, which it does not. No, it does. Then Yeah. Where are you going to go? It's not it's not that people don't care or that, pe- you know, it's just that the the other alternative is is very in, in only a handful of instances been at all seriously uh, explored, uh, let alone implemented. That's right. And so, you know, you get you get the sort of party that's sort of scrambling to be the copycat or you get the original, which is the Republicans. I mean, I don't agree with it, but like it's not as though there was any other way to go, really. You know, I mentioned to you the other day, uh, Monday or Tuesday, that I've been researching this this book uh, that I've been writing. And one of the things that has struck me is how many different political parties there were in the 19th century. And politicians were constantly moving between them because there was no deep loyalty to political parties. The loyalty was to your ideas. It was to your ideology. And so if you were 
a Republican. The Republicans were were the, you know, abolitionists, the anti-slavery party of the 19th century. And you didn't like the fact that that they were, you know, not as abolitionist as you were, maybe. Then you would move over to the Free Soil Party or to the Union Party or the Independent Republican Party. There are a whole bunch of parties. Uh, the Democrats had the Democratic Party, the Southern Democratic Party. They had the uh, what were they called? Not the Whigs. They were the proto-Republicans. But anyway, it was this constant movement between parties. And now it's like third party. Well, are you you're one of those radicals? Yeah. You know, we don't need. Oh, you're going to throw away your vote and vote for the Greens. Well, yeah, actually, I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or the Libertarians, which I voted for the last two times. John, do you want some Donald Trump news? Two bits of Donald Trump. Oh, I know news. what you're going to tell me. Yes. All right, well, we have we have two. We have two pieces of news. They both relate to documents. One, you have yeah. a New York Attorney General Letitia James. She's asked a judge to hold Donald Trump in contempt for refusing to turn over documents and to fine him $10,000 a day until he complies. Yeah. This isn't that part of that uh, fraud investigation. Right. Into Trump organization. The other is. Uh, the Justice Department, apparently, this is uh, according to sources familiar with the matter who aren't named, um, they are investigating uh, a possible mishandling of government secrets by Trump yeah. after its top secret papers were found at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, in fact, a lot of those top secret papers had been torn in half, which is a very oh, these... Donald Trump thing to do. Mm -hmm. Staff had taped them back together again. And then instead of turning them over to the National Archives, which is what you're supposed to do, mm -hmm. they put them in a moving van and they sent them to Mar-a-Lago. You can't do that. That is actually that that meets the legal definition of a violation of the Espionage Act. You can't do that. Wow. Yeah. Not just not just for journalists. Not just for journalists <laughs> yeah. or whistleblowers. So we will we will see uh, where, what comes of this and where any of these investigations go. We had that big news of the uh, prosecutors resigning, not in this one, but in the uh, the city investigation. New York, right. Um, haven't heard much from Letitia James recently. No, haven't heard much of anything from Letitia James. In fact, there was a piece in the New York Times yesterday or the day before. I think it was yesterday talking about uh, Andrew Cuomo's big comeback. Well, Andrew Cuomo just left. Yeah. He's already got the big comeback mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's thinking not of running for uh, governor, but of running for state attorney general so he can beat Letitia James because she's the one that wrecked his career. It's getting kind of ugly in New York. Also, would you like to hear? We are we are hoping to talk to uh, Chris Smalls of the Amazon Labor Union, who's running late right now. But remember, yeah. we, we have talked about the role of uh, influential Democratic consulting and polling firm yes. in Amazon's anti-labor activities. Uh, they, they issued a statement that they deeply regret being ah. involved in any way. In uh, yeah, in in the the fight against the Amazon Union, uh, Libby Watson, give back the hundred twenty three thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. Are they going to give back the hundred twenty three thousand that they took from uh, Amazon? Oh no, I don't think so. And also, uh, the website that they made for Amazon, the anti labor website they made, was last updated March thirtieth. So in oh the span God. of a week, they have come to deeply regret their actions and see they <laughs> deeply regret that anybody noticed and they deeply regretted that they that they didn't win because there would have been a lot less attention on them, I think. They in that deeply case. regret that they got caught. The other um, interesting news is that the National Labor Relations Board uh, is sh the general counsel is going to ask the board to find that it is an unfair labor practice to require workers to attend pro company meetings, this captive audience. Uh, meetings. 
And I do think that's one of the things that uh, the Amazon labor union attempted to break up in, uh, in, in, you know, in trying to, you know, demonstrate to workers at Amazon that they would be better served by joining a union and that they, they got that historic vote. But that would be that would be, I think, uh, an interesting change if if these captive audience meetings were declared illegal. I'll say. Yeah, I think that would be a very big deal. Um, you know, Amazon has been particularly aggressive in its efforts to not just break up um, attempts to organize unions, but to forbid employees from even thinking about joining a union, certainly not discussing it, not on company time, not even, you know, on your break or in the break room. Uh, see, and this is the thing about the the so-called right to work, which I like to call right to work for less. Um, it's it's they want you to work under their rules, nobody else's. And if you have different thoughts about the way things are going, you're out, you're fired. And they don't want to give up that power. Yeah, it was reported during the pandemic that Amazon was, I think they were, they were using AI to yes. pinpoint uh, hotspots, uni- possible uh, labor agitation hotspots using things like d- demographic information. And I don't know what I've, they plugged into the AI so that they could try to stop it uh, before it began. And of course, you know, if you are working in a company, they do they do sort of have you captive. They can yeah, put what they, they want up on the walls, et cetera, et cetera, which is not something you're supposed to do. But again, uh, a couple million dollars and uh, and all of their effort and intention was not enough to at least uh, to stop this process from at least getting started. Yes. You know, Chris Smalls, I mean, we had him on the show, it seems like ages ago, Mm. a month ago, month and a half ago. What this guy has accomplished is just phenomenal. It's, it's astounding to me because the deck was stacked against him and the other employees of Amazon. Uh, There was no precedent for organizing a union within Amazon. There have been votes and Amazon has won those votes. So the fact that he won, it, it just changes the whole landscape for this, this company. And this has got to embolden other Amazon workers all around the country. Now, a lot of these enormous Amazon warehouses mm-hmm. are in states that are union friendly. Places like Maryland and Pennsylvania and Michigan, Massachusetts, they have huge facilities there. And I can't help but to think that there's going to be a domino effect. It has emboldened the president. He was criticized for not directly naming Amazon a, a couple of months ago when he was talking about right. unions and his, his uh, administration's support for unions. And uh, yesterday in addressing a conference of, I think, is the National Building, uh, Building Workers Union uh, said, Amazon, we're coming for you. Which is, I mean, on one hand, it's like a little bit of stolen valor there, you know, yes. you didn't do much. <laughs> but also, I, you know, as we were talking about maybe this morning, John, um, I, I don't know that Joe Biden naming Amazon while this fight was going on would have actually helped or would it have no. given Amazon fodder to say this is unfair. You know, we can't if the president is talking, you know, as they did with Donald Trump in the um, Bo Bergdahl trial, yes. right? The Bo Bergdahl he, he trial. He talked about yes. how he's a traitor. He should be executed. And yeah. his lawyer said it, it matters what this, the president of the United States says. Sure like does. it matters when he makes up foreign policy on Just the like fly. Just like it mattered a couple of days ago, or I guess it was on Sunday when when Joe Biden said, oh, I don't think Hunter committed any crimes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? There's an ongoing Justice Department investigation and you need to close your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Not very good at doing that lately. No. I think we'll take a break here and try to bring in our guest for the last few minutes of this show. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We are still expecting our final guest, um, We, which is really exciting to me, yeah. actually, because we've been talking about this issue so much. But we are expecting uh, Chris Smalls to be in the studio. He's been running a little bit late, as you might imagine. He has lots and lots of meetings around Washington. Uh, so uh, so he's busy and the schedule can tend to slip. But can, there are other things going on. Yeah, we can we'll, slide in the headlines that we would have been sliding in in the last few minutes. One is uh, China, China maybe uh, getting a, a little bit of a break here. It had been warning that it would not take it lightly were Speaker Nancy Pelosi to visit Taiwan, as, right. uh, as had been su- uh, suggested. Uh, but then we got word today that Nancy Pelosi has COVID. Right. So it seems like a bullet bullet dodged there for, for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan would do nothing but serve to piss off the Chinese. Yeah. I mean, what would she hope to accomplish on a trip like that? I don't know. Drink some bubble tea. Well, yeah. I mean, there's lots of great what, stuff. I lived in Taiwan. There's lots of great stuff to do in Taiwan. I would but love uh, to if go. you're the speaker of the if you're the speaker of the House of the United States. That's different. Not necessary. And also not a great time. We want to go now. You want to go to Taiwan now, right? You know, while Russia and Ukraine are, are fighting a war that everyone is saying it reflects on uh, the relationship between China and Taiwan. Like you want to upend some kind of delicate balance there right now. Okay. Yeah. Right. This seems that a little doesn't bit make like, any sense at like all. Like grandstanding. This is a story completely unrelated to anything we've talked about today. Uh, but fighters participating in the pay-per-view Ultimate Fighting Championship event will soon be able to get fan-based bonuses in cryptocurrency. So yeah, Crypto.com and UFC announced it today that the fan bonus of the night, their crypto bonuses that will be awarded to the top three fighters as chosen by fans during the pay-per-view events. Just like, I don't know, it seems kind of fun. I don't know where, I have not checked crypto recently. I don't know where any of it stands. I don't know where it is, but, uh, you know, so, so maybe it's worthless or maybe you get something that'll be worth some money at some point. This kid, Aaron Paul, I think his name is, or not Aaron Paul. Um, he's the actor. This Paul, whatever his name Logan is. Logan Paul? Yeah, Logan Paul, right. He's been fighting, you know, mostly has-beens and making millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he fought over the weekend, and when he left the ring, he was wearing a $5 million Pokemon card around his neck. A $5 million Pokemon card. Well, I'm going to interrupt myself. I wish I didn't know what any of that meant. We're joined now by... I'm going to shake your hand first. Chris Smalls. <laughs> I'm so happy to meet you. Okay. President of the Amazon Labor Union. Yeah, Chris, congratulations. How are you? Good to Thank see you. you. Good to slide you in here for the last couple of minutes. Yeah. Uh, Sorry I'm late. That's no okay. problem. We figured you were busy. I want to ask... I mean, I, I'm sure you are, are getting asked the same questions a whole lot. But, like, I, I do want to start with the fact that Amazon really thought that it was making the right choice in in making you the face of labor organizing at Amazon. And I, I wonder if you think, looking back, if by singling you out, Amazon actually helped you because it made this movement personal. Yeah, absolutely, because it motivated me to continue to fight um, after they terminated me. You know, I wanted to continue to fight for workers' rights, advocate for workers' rights, especially pertaining to Amazon workers nationwide. So, you know, they said it and, um, you know, they got what they wanted. Yeah. Do you think that this is going to be something of a domino effect where now other Amazon workers have seen that this is possible, that they can do this, too, and that it's going to begin spreading? Absolutely. It's already, you know, since we won, we already got contacted by probably over 100 buildings nationwide. 
So yeah, it's, it's no stopping us now. And this is just the beginning. What is the advice you're giving them? Um, so we're going to have a national call with everybody. Obviously, you know, we're being overwhelmed right now and the hype is still here. Everybody's mm-hmm. still excited. The labor movement's buzzing. So um, we, we're trying to hone in on everything, but we still have another election to focus on in the meantime. After that, you know, whirlwind of things, we will absolutely get everybody up to speed on how they can organize their workplace, you know, anywhere in the country. And what is the work that, I mean, you know, it is tempting to see this as the the end of a fight, but obviously it is not. Obviously, it, it is the beginning. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what, what happens next. What is the work that you are now starting at the Amazon Labor Union? Well, um, you know, first things first, we got to fight for a contract. You know, now the really the real battle real, really begins, you know. So we're, we're going to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. We're going to be focused on the election and also, uh, you know, focus on proposing the contract to deliver to the company as soon as possible. We don't want to be a long, dragged out process. We want to make sure we deliver a contract. That'd be the real victory. Hmm. Okay, cool. Are you going to be working or cooperating with um, the AFL-CIO, or are you going to do this uh, going it alone? Well, we're not doing it alone. We just left the, uh, you know, the Teamsters uh, office. I just came down here. That's exactly what I came down here for, to get the support, you know, and um, everything's informal. You know, we don't have to affiliate with anybody. I think everybody recognizes that, you know, we are the pioneers of this and they just need to support that. And, um, you know, we, we support anybody that's supporting us and we stand in solidarity. That's what we have to do. All of us have to take on Amazon, not just one entity. What support are you getting so far? Um, well, they starting to come now and it's, it's a little late, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, they, you know, we're getting elected officials starting to, uh, wake up and, you know, support whatever way they can. And, um, you know, other unions are starting to support, uh, giving us resources, office space, et cetera, you know, great. Um, we just need to make sure that the public is, uh, supporting as well. And, um, I think the workers are the most important thing. They're paying attention and they want to unionize their facilities. So that's that's what I'm worried about, the, the workers. And, you know, it, Walmart has to be watching this and saying, oh, crap. Now what do we do? Right. I mean, that has to be. Oh, the next I can step. tell you now I got emails from Walmart. <laughs> I got emails from Walmart uh, workers for sure. Guarantee. So look out for the Walu. W A L U. I do think. I mean, I think like having a having a, the image of labor not be a concept, but be a a person, right? A relatable human being was a re- real mistake on Amazon's part, right? You know, I, I think that that I think that that has been really important. I also wanted to ask Chris. We mentioned Joe Biden, elected official. You know, ta- talking yesterday to the National Conference of North America's Building Trades Unions, saying Amazon, we're coming for you. I wonder how that made you feel. Yeah, I actually didn't see it live, but I, you know, heard it through the grapevine. Um, people sending me the clips of it. So that's that's good. You know, the highest plateau in the country is talking about it. He actually mentioned, you know, Amazon. So that that's great. You know, I wish he would have said, that, you know, shout out to the Amazon Labor Union because we're the ones that's coming for them. Mm-hmm. So um, they got to pass that PRO Act. And if they don't pass it, then he don't need to wait on them. He needs to sign an executive order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the PRO Act is, you know, the, how seriously they take that and try to pass that is going to be a real barometer. I, I wanted to ask also, we, just today, it was reported that the Council for the National Labor Relations Board is going to ask that the board find captive audience 
uh, pro-company meetings illegal. And I have a feeling you guys had to come up against these captive audience meetings all the time. Oh, yeah. How significant would it be for companies not to be allowed to do that anymore? That's that's monumental because we were the one possibly by a landslide if they weren't able to do that. You know, those audiences where they put these workers in classrooms every 20 minutes, every single day for the last, you know, six, seven months. That that's definitely spreading missing. Uh, they're very coercive. They telling people to vote no. They're taking away their option. It's uh, suppressing their votes and spreading misinformation, spreading lies. Um, that that doesn't help the workers that's trying to organize. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's that. We've got to wrap the show up. That is all yeah, we have time for. But that was we were joined here by Chris Smalls. He is a president of the new Amazon Labor Union. He, of course, was the worker who was fired for attempting to organize his workplace. What two years ago now? Almost yeah, two years. Over two, two years. Over two years. Now. More than two years ago, uh, organized a walkout was was smeared and uh, has come back to uh, to for a first victory in what's going to have to be a series of victories against Amazon. But Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming down here after your important meetings. Thank you for having me. I'm going to have to say thank you to all of our guests and the production team here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 